Section 18 of La Samois. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samois by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Vizitelli. Fifth part of Chapter 4. While Coupeau was bedridden, the Gouget were very kind to Gervaise. Madame Gouget was always ready to assist. She never went to shop without stopping to ask Gervaise if there was anything she needed, sugar or butter or salt. She always brought over hot bouillon on the evenings she cooked pot au feu. Sometimes, when Gervaise seemed to have too much to do, Madame Gouget helped her do the dishes or clean the kitchen herself. Gouget took her water-pails every morning and filled them at the tap on Rue de Poissonnière, saving her two sous a day. After dinner, if no family came to visit, the Gouget would come over to visit with the Coupeau. Until ten o'clock, the blacksmith would smoke his pipe and wash Gervaise busy with her invalid. He would not speak ten words the entire evening. He was moved to pity by the sight of her pouring Coupeau's tea and medicine into a cup, or stirring the sugar in it very carefully so as to make no sound with the spoon. It stirred him deeply when she would lean over Coupeau and speak in her soft voice. Never before had he known such a fine woman. Her limp increased the credit due her for wearing herself out doing things for her husband all day long. She never sat down for ten minutes, not even to eat. She was always running to the chemists, and then she would still keep the house clean, not even a speck of dust. She never complained, no matter how exhausted she became. Gouget developed a deep affection for Gervaise in this atmosphere of unselfish devotion. One day he said to the invalid, "'Well, old man, now you're patched up again. I wasn't worried about you. Your wife works miracles.' Gouget was supposed to be getting married. His mother had found a suitable girl, a lace-mender like herself, whom she was urging him to marry. He had agreed so as not to hurt her feelings, and the wedding day had been set for early September. Money had long since been saved to set them up in housekeeping. However, when Gervaise referred to his coming marriage, he shook his head, saying, oh, Not every woman is like you, Madame Coupeau. If all women were like you, I'd marry ten of them. At the end of two months, Coupeau was able to get up. He did not go far, only from the bed to the window, and even then Gervaise had to support him. There he would sit down in the easy chair the Lorilleur had brought, with his right leg stretched out on a stool. This joker, who used to laugh at the people who slipped down on frosty days, felt greatly put out by his accident. He had no philosophy. He had spent those two months in bed, in cursing and in worrying the people about him. It was not an existence, really, to pass one's life on one's back, with a pin all tied up and as stiff as a sausage. Ah, he certainly knew that ceiling by heart. There was a crack at the corner of the alcove that he could have drawn with his eyes shut. Then, when he was made comfortable in the easy chair, it was another grievance. Would he be fixed there for long, just like a mummy? Nobody ever passed along the street, so it was no fun to watch. Besides, it stank of bleach water all day. No, he was just growing old. He'd have given ten years of his life just to go see how the fortifications were getting along. He kept going on about his fate. It wasn't right what had happened to him, a good worker like him, not a loafer or a drunkard. He could have understood in that case. Papa Coupeau said he broke his neck one day that he'd been boozing. 
I can't say that it was deserved, but anyhow it was explainable. I had had nothing since my luncheon was perfectly quiet, and without a drop of liquor in my body, and yet I came to grief just because I wanted to turn round to smile at Nana. Don't you think that's too much? If there is providence, it certainly arranges things in a very peculiar manner. I, for one, shall never believe in it. And when, at last, he was able to use his legs, he retained a secret grudge against work. It was a handicraft full of misfortunes to pass one's day like the cats on the roofs of the houses. The employers were no fools. They sent you to your death, being far too cowardly to venture themselves on a ladder, and stopped at home in safety at their firesides without caring a hang for the poorer classes. And he got to the point of saying that everyone ought to fix the zinc himself on his own house. Mon Dieu, it was the only fair way to do it. If you don't want the rain to come in, do the work yourself. He regretted he hadn't learned another trade, something more pleasant, something less dangerous, maybe cabinet-making. It was really his father's fault. Lots of fathers had the foolish habit of shoving their sons into their own line of work. For another two months, Coupeau hobbled about on crutches. He had first of all managed to get as far as the street and smoke his pipe in front of the door. Then he had managed to reach the exterior boulevard, dragging himself along in the sunshine and remaining for hours on one of the seats. Gaiety returned to him. His infernal tongue got sharper in these long hours of idleness, and with the pleasure of living he gained there a delight in doing nothing. An indolent feeling took possession of his limbs, and his muscles gradually glided into a very sweet slumber. It was the slow victory of laziness which took advantage of his convalescence to obtain possession of his body and unnerve him with its tickling. He regained his health as thorough a banterer as before, thinking life beautiful, and not seeing why it should not last forever. As soon as he could get about without the crutches, he made longer walks, often visiting construction jobs to see old comrades. He would stand with his arms folded, sneering and shaking his head, ridiculing the workers slaving at their job, stretching out his leg to show them what you got for wearing yourself out. Being able to stand about and mock others while they were working satisfied his spite against hard work. He no doubt would have to go back to it, but he'd put it off as long as possible. He had reason now to be lazy. Besides, it seemed good to him to loaf around like a bum. On the afternoons, when Coupeau felt dull, he would call on the Loreleur. The latter would pity him immensely and attract him with all sorts of amiable attentions. During the first years following his marriage, he had avoided them, thanks to Gervaise's influence. Now they regained their sway over him by twitting him about being afraid of his wife. He was no man, that was evident. The Loreleur, however, showed great discretion, and were loud in their praise of the laundress's good qualities. Coupeau, without as yet coming to wrangling, swore to the latter that his sister adored her, and requested that she would behave more amiably to her. The first quarrel which the couple had occurred one evening on account of Etienne. The zinc worker had passed the afternoon with the Loreleur. On arriving home, as the dinner was not quite ready, and the children were whining for their soup, he suddenly turned upon Etienne and boxed his ears soundly. And during an hour he did not cease to grumble. The brat was not his, he did not know why he allowed him to be in the place. He would end up by turning him out into the street. Up till then he had tolerated the youngster without all that fuss. 
On the morrow he talked of his dignity. Three days after he kept kicking the little fellow morning and evening, so much so that the child, whenever he heard him coming, bolted into the Gougets, where the old lace-mender kept a corner of the table clear for him to do his lessons. Gervaise had for some time past returned to work. She no longer had the trouble of looking under the glass cover of the clock. All the savings were gone, and she had to work hard, work for four, for there were four to feed now. She alone maintained them. Whenever she heard people pitying her, she at once found excuses for Coupeau. Recollect, he had suffered so much. It was not surprising if his disposition had soured, but it would pass off when his health returned. And if anyone hinted that Coupeau seemed all right again, that he could very well return to work, she protested. No, 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 not yet. She did not want to see him take to his bed again. They would allow her to know best what the doctor said, perhaps. It was she who prevented him returning to work, telling him every morning to take his time and not to force himself. She even slipped twenty sous pieces into his waistcoat pocket. Coupeau accepted this as something perfectly natural. He was always complaining of aches and pains so that she would coddle him. At the end of six months he was still convalescing. Now, whenever he went to watch others working, he was always ready to join his comrades in downing a shot. It wasn't so bad, after all. They had their fun, and they never stayed more than five minutes. That couldn't hurt anybody. Only a hypocrite would say he went in because he wanted a drink. No wonder they had laughed at him in the past. A glass of wine never hurt anybody. He only drank wine, though, never brandy. Wine never made you sick, didn't get you drunk, and helped you to live longer. Soon, though, several times, after a day of idleness in going from one building job to another, he came home half-drunk. On those occasions, Gervais pretended to have a terrible headache, and kept their door closed, so that the Gouget couldn't hear Coupeau's drunken babblings. Little by little, the young woman lost her cheerfulness. Morning and evening she went to the Rue de la Goutte d'Or to look at the shop, which was still to be let, and she would hide herself as though she were committing some childish prank unworthy of a grown-up person. This shop was beginning to turn her brain. At night-time, when the light was out, she experienced the charm of some forbidden pleasure by thinking of it with her eyes open. She again made her calculations, two hundred and fifty francs for the rent— one hundred and fifty francs for utensils, and moving, one hundred francs in hand to keep them going for a fortnight, in all five hundred francs at the very lowest figure. If she was not continually thinking of it aloud, it was for fear she should be suspected of regretting the savings swallowed up by Coupeau's illness. She often became quite pale, having almost allowed her desire to escape her, and catching back her words quite confused as though she had been thinking of something wicked. Now they would have to work for four or five years before they would succeed in saving such a sum. Her regret was not being able to start in business at once. She would have earned all the home required, without counting on Coupeau, letting him take months to get into the way of work again. She would no longer have been uneasy, but certain of the future, and free from the secret fears which sometimes seized her when he returned home very gay and singing, and relating some joke of that animal, My Boots, whom he treated to a drink. One evening Gervaise came home alone. Gouget entered, and did not hurry off again, according to his habit. He seated himself, and smoked as he watched her. 
He probably had something very serious to say. He thought it over, let it ripen without being able to put it into suitable words. At length, after a long silence, he appeared to make up his mind, and took his pipe out of his mouth to say all in a breath, "'Madame Gervaise, will you allow me to lend you some money?' She was leaning over an open drawer, looking for some dishcloths. She got up, her face very red. He must have seen her then, in the morning, standing in ecstasy before the shop for close upon ten minutes. He was smiling in an embarrassed way, as though he had made some insulting proposal, but she hastily refused. Never would she accept money from anyone without knowing when she would be able to return it. Then also it was a question of too large an amount, and, as he insisted, in a frightened manner, she ended by exclaiming, "'But your marriage! I, I certainly can't take the money you've been saving for your marriage!' "'Oh, don't let that bother you!' he replied, turning red in his turn. "'I'm not going to be married now. That was just an idea, you know. Really, I would much sooner lend you the money.' Then they both held down their heads. There was something very pleasant between them, to which they did not give expression, and Gervaise accepted. Gouget had told his mother. They crossed the landing and went to see her at once. The lace-mender was very grave, and looked rather sad as she bent her face over her tambour frame. She would not thwart her son, but she no longer approved Gervaise's project, and she plainly told her why. Coupeau was going to the bad. Coupeau would swallow up her shop. She especially could not forgive the zinc-worker for having refused to learn to read during his convalescence. The blacksmith had offered to teach him, but the other had sent him to the right-about, saying that learning made people get thin. This had almost caused a quarrel between the two workmen. Each went his own way. Madame Gouget, however, seeing her big boy's beseeching glances, behaved very kindly to Gervaise. It was settled that they would lend their neighbours five hundred francs. The latter were to repay the amount by instalments of twenty francs a month. It would last as long as it lasted. "'I say the blacksmith's sweet on you!' exclaimed Coupeau, laughing, when he heard what had taken place. "'Oh, I'm quite easy. He's too big a muff. We'll pay him back his money. But, really, if he had to deal with some people, he'd find himself pretty well duped.' On the morrow the Coupeaus took the shop. All day long Gervaise was running from Rouneur de la Goutte d'Or. When the neighbours beheld her pass thus, nimble and delighted to the extent that she no longer limped, they said she must have undergone some operation. End of chapter 4 Recording by David Lazarus